This week on Myths and Legends, it's a story from 1001 Nights, where we'll see the benefits of lifting weights and growing out your mustache until it wraps behind your ears, how being polite means you get to borrow your friend's magic carpet, and that you shouldn't be weird with an ivory tube. The creature this week is a monster living on a mountain who doesn't want knives pulled on her, and who also might just be an elderly woman on a mountain who doesn't want knives pulled on her. This is Myths and Legends, episode 326, Enough. This is a podcast where we tell stories from mythology and folklore. Some are incredibly popular stories you might think you know, but with surprising origins. Others are stories that might be new to you, but are definitely worth a listen. Today's story is from 1001 Nights, but since we finished up on the framing narrative not too long ago, now we just tell the stories from the collection. It's the same collection as the stories of Aladdin, Sinbad, and Alibaba, to name a few. And today, we'll jump in with three brothers, the sons of a sultan, who want to marry someone they really shouldn't. So, you're in love with your cousin, the sultan of India said to his three sons, Hussein, Ali, and Ahmed. The three young men looked to their father, then to one another. Wait, you are? Then they all looked to their dad, the sultan. How'd you know? The sultan tossed out their notebooks from class. Each of the young men had covered pages and pages with their cousin's name, Nur-Nahar, followed by their own last name. This was odd because not only did each of the brothers have the same last name, but it was the last name the woman already had because she was the daughter of the sultan's younger brother, who left his only child in the care of the sultan when he died young of an illness. Boys, I'm going to be real with you. You can't marry your cousin, the sultan said. The three young men looked to the ground. Yeah, they understood. It was an arrested development thing. Forbidden love. She was their cousin. The sultan said, no, that wasn't it. We're medieval royalty. Cousins are absolutely fair game. I mean, it would be weird if they didn't consider it. No, it was because he didn't think he could fairly give her to one of them without the others getting angry and rising up and all that, or marry her off to a neighbor without them leading forces to rescue her. The boys sighed, and the sultan said he could see their pain and knew it wouldn't end with this. He said, though, there was another way. The three young men looked up in surprise, excitement. The sultan said that he was sending them on a quest, a quest for curiosities. Whoever brought back the most extraordinary item from somewhere in the world, they would be the one to get the hand of Princess Nurinahar. The boys had started this meeting with the creeping dread that they wouldn't be allowed to marry their cousin. Now, though, there was a chance. All three brothers agreed. The sultan gave them money and each left dressed like a merchant, with an officer accompanying them, dressed like an enslaved man. Hussein went to the Vijayanagara Empire in South India. There, he lodged with the Minister of Foreign Merchants and explored the city. Soon, he found the greatest curiosity in the empire, a flying carpet. After the merchant selling the carpet let him do a test drive for some reason, Hussein returned to the merchant because he was honest like that. And 40 purses later, This was the currency, purse, not the purse purse. 
the currency being remarkably difficult to search for because of its name, so I don't know the conversion rate. Regardless, Hussein saw 40 purses as a bargain, rolled up the carpet, and began walking home, flying carpet under his arm. Then he laughed. Silly Hussein. He shoved the carpet into the hands of his minister to make him carry it, and the pair continued their walk. There is a lot more here that I'll link to in the show notes. It's basically just describing the city and their customs, but having been written by a 19th century British guy, translating a 17th century man writing from the Arabian Peninsula, describing a culture a few hundred years earlier in India, it feels more like a game of anthropology telephone than anything actually worthy of study. Could be wrong. I link to it so you can check it out at your own leisure slash discretion. Ali went from India to Persia, where, in the capital, he encountered a man holding a half-meter-long ivory tube. That was 30 purses. Ali said that this man had to be mad. 30 purses. Remember, I have no idea how much this actually is, but I guess it's a lot. 30 purses was way too much for a hollow ivory tube. Well, turned out that the ivory tube could see anything. It was a magical tube where you said what you wanted to see, and then you looked into it and saw it. Real time. Ali said his father's name and saw the sultan at a feast. He grew serious and said Nur-Nahar's name and stood rooted there, staring at her going about her day, laughing and talking a continent away. All right, free trial's over. The merchant tried to wrench the ivory tube back from the prince in disguise. The prince wouldn't look away. He dug into his pocket and threw down the money on the table for the merchant. He stumbled from the shop, refusing to take the ivory tube from his face, bumping into a few doorways and people on his way. How do you like them apples? Prince Ahmed heard in the city of Samarkand, in modern-day Uzbekistan, as the merchant presented apples. I'm sorry, how do you like these apples? The merchant corrected himself. Don't know where them apples came from. Ahmed said they, yeah, they were nice. But he had a pocket overflowing with money and was looking for something a bit more than just apples. The merchant narrowed his eyes, an apple connoisseur of style and taste. Come. The merchant waved Ahmed to the back room, where, on a table, sat another apple. The merchant said that this apple had been left to him by a family friend. The man had been a scientist, a philosopher, and an alchemist. For this apple, the mere smell of it would cure any ailment. Ahmed cocked a brow. Really? A magic apple? The man held up his hands. Don't believe him. Go try it out. So they did. They went down the street to an infirmary. And, for a few people of Ahmed's choosing, the merchant allowed Ahmed to hold the apple up to their nose and their illnesses immediately cleared up. They laughed and ran out of the infirmary, but at number four, the merchant snatched the apple back. If Ahmed wanted a cure anymore, he needed to do it on his own time. On the way back, Ahmed asked why the merchant would ever sell such a thing. Why not become a famed physician? The merchant said who needed the trouble? Then he had to watch out for the apple and be super paranoid. Now, better to sell it for way too much money and then get on with his life. Ahmed asked, wait, how did the inventor die? The merchant told Ahmed that the apple didn't cure stab wounds. Look, did he want it or not? Ahmed was about to say that, according to the previously discussed rules of the apple, it should cure stab wounds, but he was getting a weird feeling from this guy. 
he tossed down 35 purses, took his apple, and got on the road. Ahmed returned to the province in which the three brothers had pledged to meet and found that Hussein had been there for three months already. Apparently, Hussein had realized something a few weeks out from the south, and he was able to get back home in no time. Ali was the final person to arrive. Something, apparently, really held him up on the road and slowed his progress. And, unrelated, he arrived with a big, pronounced, ringed bruise around his left eye. The three brothers unveiled their items. Hussein, his magic carpet, Ahmed, his magic apple, and Ali, eventually, reluctantly, his ivory tube. Each got a ride on the carpet, Ali's eye bruise was cleared up by the apple, and each brother used the tube to see how their dad was doing, and to check out old friends at home and on their travels, and Hussein whispered something under his breath and gasped. Hey, don't be weird with the tube, Ali yelled, not adding, only I'm allowed to be weird with the tube. Hussein shook his head, no. Look. Ali looked, and then Ahmed. It was Nur Nahar. She had collapsed. The young men paced the hall, each taking turns looking into the tube. They saw physicians and healers gathered around the woman they loved. Her body racked with coughs. Hussein shook his head, pulling it back from the tube. She coughed up blood. That's how you know it's really bad in movies and stuff. Then Ahmed looked around. The tube, the carpet, the apple. He lit up as he met his brother's faces. They could do it. They could save her. Working together, they could save the woman they all loved. Each brother wanted to win her hand, but they also wanted her to live. They loved her more than their petty rivalry, and if one brother managed to betray the others and make his item look best, at least she still lived. Hussein and Ali agreed. They would do it. Princess's attendants were surprised when a carpet burst through the window with three men inside. And the guys looked like they were trying to shove an apple up the princess's nose. Eventually, through her shallow breaths, she managed to catch a whiff of the apple. Her chest rose as she took a deep breath. She blinked, as if awakening from a deep sleep. And the attendants pushed the young men out of the room, the three brothers looking back with a smile. Princess is alive! We'll see how that's a big problem, but that will be right after this. The Sultan said he was so proud. His boys, putting aside their differences and their own wants to save the princess. It warmed his heart. He looked at the items laid out before him. This was a difficult one. Each of these was instrumental in saving the princess's life. If not for the tube, they wouldn't have known about it. If not for the carpet, they couldn't have reached her in time. If not for the apple, she wouldn't have been cured. They were all equal. There was no way he could choose a winner here and decide which man would marry his own cousin. So the Sultan decided on a plan B. Shooting arrows. 
Hussein, Ali, and Ahmed looked at each other, then back to him. Shooting arrows. The Sultan said, yeah, shooting arrows. Whoever shot an arrow the farthest got her. He stroked his beard. You know what? Now that they were going to do this, he felt like maybe they should have skipped the year-long quest across the world for magic items and just, I don't know, done this from the start. The boys couldn't speak for how much they were clenching their jaws. You think? And yeah, the follow-up quest for traveling halfway across the known world in search of magical items was seeing who could shoot an arrow the farthest. The rules were simple. Shoot an arrow really far. There were attendants ready to run out and measure in the event that there was any question, and that was it. Like, two rules. So, they started. As the oldest, Hussein got to go first. He did great, but he was also the one to beat, and Ali outshot him. Ali watched his brother's shoulders slump as he realized he would never be with the woman he loved. And Ali, though he loved his brother, his head was swimming. He was so happy. Then, Ahmed picked up the bow. Hussein's face was buried in his hands. Ali's head was in the clouds. And the Sultan, well, he was actually looking away for a second. The arrow flew, and it was gone. Like, gone, gone. Ahmed screamed and clapped, and the others took notice. D did he do it? Would the youngest marry the princess? Ahmed only smirked. They should go see for themselves. He yelled out to the servants in the field. Hey, whose arrow landed the farthest away? But there was only silence. Then the servants came running. Ah, uh, well, okay, here's the thing. They couldn't find Ahmed's arrow. Ahmed said, uh, okay, so he won? The servants said, yeah, I mean, seemed fair. They all saw it whiz by them. Are you sure? Ali stepped forward. You would swear on this. Under pain of death. The servants said, well, I mean, they definitely remembered feeling like the arrow passed them, like the, the wind and stuff, maybe hearing it, but ah, ugh, swearing. Ahmed turned to the sultan. The sultan shrugged. Sorry, he just glanced away. The other two brothers said the same, with Hussein being the most apologetic. Ahmed said, but he did it. He shot the arrow the farthest. So far, they couldn't even find it. He won. The sultan shrugged. He'd send some people out to look for it. And he did. It came back empty-handed, though. No one said that Ahmed was trying to win by trickery, or saw Ali's shot go so far that he purposefully shot wide in an attempt to redo the contest. But... They all kind of thought it. Absent Ahmed's arrow, Ali won the day and won marriage to the princess. Ali took Nur-Nahar into his arms. He turned to his brothers. He wanted to ask them to be his best men. Ali knew that they all loved their cousin and that he had won her in a contest, but wait, where were they going? Unsurprisingly, neither Hussein nor Ahmed could stomach seeing Ali with Nur-Nahar. Hussein announced then and there that Nur Nahar was the only woman he would ever love. So, in his duty to the crown, he was renouncing all rights of succession. There was a famous sheik who lived deep in the forest. He would take up with him and become a dervish. They were all pretty stunned by the news that the kingdom, too, would be Ali's, and they barely heard Ahmed's news. 
he believed his arrow was still out there. Something had happened that day. Yeah, you lost, Ali said. He told his brother that this wouldn't change anything. He was still marrying Nura Nahar. Ahmed shrugged, slinging a pack over his cloak. He knew he was doing this for him. Ahmed and Hussein turned to leave. The Sultan was livid. This was Ali's big day, and they were walking out on him? They said they were okay with this. Don't say you're cool with an arrow shooting contest to marry your cousin if you're not cool with an arrow shooting contest to marry your cousin, the Sultan shouted after the two men. But Hussein and Ahmed were already gone. Ahmed knew where he aimed the arrow, so he knew where it had to have gone. He left the city to the wedding celebration behind him. 200 yards out, he was starting to get a little skeptical. 500, and he began to lose hope. A mile out, and I, he had no idea what had happened, but he was at a loss. He kept walking, though. The arrow didn't just blink out of existence. It had to be there. So he would keep going. And he did. He marched for most of the day before, there, in the rocks that lay tumbled before a cliff face, he found his arrow. He shook his head as he picked it up. Well, there was some magical nonsense going on here. He worked out, he trained, but you know, no one could shoot an arrow this far. His only guess was that he was supposed to come here, to this lost and lonely place in the wilderness and find his arrow. So. Ahmed explored. He looked around the cliffs, from which the arrow would have undoubtedly bounced, and saw a crag, and behind it, a small opening. He shrugged. Ahmed had come this far. Why not shove himself down in a hole of dubious safety? That wasn't like he had anything else going on in his life. The stones scraped him. The cave before him stretched on into nothingness. As soon as he made it over the threshold the cool air breezing past him, he sat on the inside of the cave. What was he doing? He was running. He went searching for an arrow and he found it. And it changed nothing. He was hoping against hope that his life could be more than it was. That he could be with the woman he loved and have some measure of control. But that was his brother's life. Still, whatever, this was his lot and he needed to leave this quest, this hope, behind, and go home. He rose, but something caught his eye, deep in the darkness. His eyes had adjusted, and he saw it. Somewhere, deep in the cave, there was a glow, a soft orange light. He looked back to the desert that he knew, or the cave that could be full of dangers, but was a step forward. He briefly considered the heavy symbolism of this moment and then went toward the light in the darkness. Come near, Prince Ahmed. You are welcome, a voice called out from the troop of ladies. The troop of ladies emerged from an underground palace, glowing with an otherworldly light. He couldn't tell who was speaking. But then the women parted, and she emerged. She walked with confidence, authority. She held out her hand, 
and Ahmed just knew. He bowed to her, his forehead at his feet. The prince before the stranger. You see, the prince was smart enough to know. A palace in the depths? The arrow's supernatural flight? She wasn't of this world. And if she didn't deserve his awe, at least she deserved his respect. Pari Banu, the woman, smiled and told the prince to rise. The prince, having grown up in a palace himself, well, had never really seen anything like what was inside her home. The luxury, the extravagance. Pari, though, watched him with a smile. She explained that she knew him. She knew his father and Hussein and Ali, even Princess Nurunahar. Pari watched his face and nodded. Yeah, she saw that that memory still hurt. She didn't just know Ahmed, though. She brought Ahmed there. Ahmed picked a piece of fruit from the tray that one of Pari's ladies laid on the table. He had guessed as much. The arrow. Pari shook her head. Not only the arrow, but the carpet, the ivory tube, the apple. She had placed all those things for the brothers to find. She said she was the daughter of a genie. Pari said that she knew, too, that he had given up that he was gonna go resign himself to a life in his father's court, eventually serving his brother, a man far less capable than himself, and the queen, a woman Ahmed loved far more. His head drooped. Party put her finger under his chin and lifted it. But there was more for him in life, and here, there was her. She kissed him. Six months later, Ahmed was happy. He had finally grown to accept that Nurunahar would never be his wife. That's because his actual wife, Pari, and yeah, they got married. She informed him that, as ruler of her own castle, she could decide when and who she married. So they were married the night Ahmed arrived. And over the next six months, Ahmed had healed from not being able to marry his cousin and from unfairly losing the competition. But he did miss his father, the sultan. He walked off one day to the sultan yelling behind him and hadn't returned for half a year. Even when he went out for the magic apple, he had sent regular messages home. He told Pari this. In their magnificent parlor over breakfast one morning, and he saw her take a deep breath, look off to the corner of the room and ask, is it me? He took her hands into his. No, 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 no. It was that he wanted to see his father. It had been so long and the man was growing older. He didn't want to worry the sultan. She said she was glad to hear it wasn't because he felt like he was a prisoner here. Ahmed laughed. No, of course not. Wait, he wasn't actually a prisoner, was he? She continued. Okay, she would grant him leave on the condition that he would return. Ahmed said, of course, but she was really making it sound like he was a prisoner here. He looked out at the pinpoint of light at the far end of the cave. He could leave any time he wanted, right? She continued talking. He would leave with 20 mounted warriors, but given party's nature, it was probably best for everyone if Ahmed kept quiet about her and this place. He was only to tell his father that he was happy and that Ahmed's happiness should be sufficient. Ahmed said he, he was, but it was weird that she just asserted that he was. She smiled 
and left to help her husband prepare. We'll take a short time jump and meet a new character, but that will, once again, be right after this. The sorceress huddled in the rocks. She had been there for a week, but this was the only logical spot. This was where she could catch Prince Ahmed. She had been summoned by the Sultan of India for a job. His son was a loving and generous man. He arrived monthly with a team of horses bearing extravagant gifts for the Sultan and his people. So suspicious. And also he would leave in the night and refuse to tell his father where he lived. After several months of visits, though, people started to get wary. It's kind of like Agent Smith's misanthropic speech from The Matrix. It was too perfect. Everyone was happy. Everyone got along. So it was a disaster. The courtiers, the advisors, immediately saw specters everywhere. Ahmed couldn't just be kind, generous, and loving. He had to be plotting against his father using his gifts to his father and brother to lull them into an unsuspecting stupor, and his gifts to the people to aid in the rebellion that he would soon foment. So the sultan had hired her, not because he believed his courtiers, but because he didn't. He wanted to prove them wrong, he told her. If it wasn't her bread and butter, his level of denial would be laughable. She didn't really care what the reason was. It was a fun job. There was some magic at play, and it was better than the run-of-the-mill prophecy or doing curses for a jilted lover jobs that were way too common. She blinked, and there he was. The prince, Ahmed, with 20 attendants. The sorceress was completely still. There was magic here. She had been watching that cliff face for a week, and then they just appear? She waited for the prince to leave. She knew where he was going, and for how long he would be gone. The real test now was finding where he came from. The sorceress's limbs creaked to life as she stood and limped over to the cliff face. Quickly finding the crack that the prince himself had found nearly a year prior, she looked down into the darkness. Jinn, fairies, ifrit, something was down there. Something was bolstering this prince with its magic. She lowered herself into the dark, lit a lantern, and found the sheer rock wall, just a short walk into the cave. She hit it a few times and smiled. Whoever or whatever was down there, they were good. So the next time that Ahmed left, the sorceress was ready and bleeding. Not a lot. It was like how professional wrestlers used to do it. A small cut on the forehead let the blood trickle down. The sorceress had coated herself in dirt and grime, and that was how the prince found her the next time he was set to go out from the cave. The sorceress was lying by the edge of the road, bleeding and battered. From what she uttered, she made it sound like she had been robbed and left for dead. Prince called out an order, and two of his attendants leapt down and, gingerly, took her atop one of the horses. The sorceress feigned unconsciousness, but she studied every detail. The cliff that had once only contained a small crack was now a wide, paved road. Party was surprised that he was back and more than happy to take the injured woman in and care for her, giving her the water from the fountain of lions, curing her of all ailments. 
and it did. The sorceress had never felt better in her life. She stood up in all of Pari, the genie. Pari smiled and said that, now that she was cured, she better get back on the road, right? The sorceress got the impression that Pari was leading her the long way through the palace. To show the opulence and power in which she lived, the dozens of hundreds of fairies and jinn who served her, their eyes seeming to glow red when they took notice of the sorceress. The sorceress shuddered. At the iron gate, the gate that had once been a wall to the sorceress, Pari said goodbye, and when the sorceress turned to reply, she only found rock. Yeah, you have to arrest the prince immediately, the vizier said to the sultan. You can't arrest him. He has two dozen genie attendants. They'll be gone in an instant and return to her, another advisor said. Uh, I just want to say that you shouldn't arrest anyone. It was a show of force more than anything, the sorceress said. She had seen it firsthand. Ahmed's genie wife was powerful, but she wasn't hostile. The sultan's advisors kept talking as if she hadn't said a word. The advisors began pulling out scrolls, ancient tomes, anything that could help them should they go to war with the jinn. You don't go to war with the jinn. There's no war. It's like a human going to war with ants. You'll lose, the sorceress called out. And the room stopped. But there was a play here. Something they weren't seeing. The men took notice. The sorceress wasn't necessarily proud that she was the architect of the plan, but it was a better plan than sending countless men to die at the hands of the djinn or cursing the city or whatever. She was something of a utilitarian. Also, she was getting paid for her services. The sorceress said that the issue wasn't Ahmed. Ahmed would die for his father. The issue was her. Party was powerful. She was unknown separate them and the sultan won the sultan nodded he was listening the plan was for the sultan to exploit Ahmed's loyalty to get him to ask his genie wife to make powerful items for the sultan a tent that could rest in the palm of his hand but which could hold an entire army water from the fountain of lions that could cure all ills and other things successive requests that would not only strain Ahmed's relationship with his wife but would put the sultan at an advantage should open war break out with the jinn. The sorceress had no doubt that the genie had forbidden Ahmed from telling the sultan anything about her. So she would no doubt think he had betrayed her. So that's just what the sultan did. I know nothing of your wife, the sultan said to his son when he arrived. And I know this sounds ridiculous. If it's impossible, it's impossible. But if it's possible, look, you love her, right? and you would do anything in your power to make her happy and to give her what she asks. Ahmed nodded. Yeah, but the sultan said just as long as he asked, as long as Ahmed asked his wife this, his duty as the sultan's son, it would be complete. Ahmed swallowed hard. Okay, he would ask. Hardy's heart beat faster. With this request, she was sure they were making a move against she and Ahmed 
She had put on a smile when Ahmed asked for the tent that could contain an army. She knew that the sultan knew about her. It had been a strategic move, flexing for the sorceress. Still, it had barely slowed the sultan's plans. And that time, her husband returned asking for the tent. No hint of malice or deceit in his face, just consternation, torn between his family and his love. So, party made it for him. She was eager to see how far the sultan would take things. The water from the Fountain of Lions was next. It was the water Pari had given the sorceress. It would heal any fever, illness, and the most grievous of wounds. From how Ahmed conveyed it, she could almost hear the father's whine. Oh, Ahmed was such a good son. He wanted his father to live and be healthy, right? This had to be such a trifling thing. Next to the tent with which he had returned, there was evil in this request, though. The Fountain of Lions was called such because it was guarded. By lions, it's right there in the name. There was nothing magical about getting the water. It was just a matter of distracting the large, full-grown male lions with a quartered sheep dangling off a terrified, sacrificial horse. But the issue wasn't with the magic or lack thereof, but that the sultan would expose his son to such danger. His son. Her. Husband. And... It wasn't enough. The sultan had made one supposedly final request. And, well, it was a strange one. Like, very specifically strange. A man who stood no taller than a foot and a half high, or about half a meter, with a beard 30 feet, or about 9 meters in length. Oh, and he can use a bar that's 500 pounds, or about 227 kilograms, as a quarterstaff. Party could see. She could see Ahmed was torn. He wanted to be a good son, but his father was using him. And if Pari wasn't here, he would eventually kill him. Ahmed was fretting not because of this, but because he didn't know how to find such a man and was afraid of disappointing his dad. I know how to find such a man, Pari replied. Pari suspected that such a man already had his hand in all of this. You see, in the story, this man is Party's brother, another half-human, half-genie. I don't know why it's such an extreme coincidence. So yeah, I'm going to say that the brother, named Shaibar, sensed the danger that the sultan presented to his sister and found a way to make himself appear in the sorceress's divination. But yeah, in the original, it is a complete coincidence. Party warned her husband that her brother was terrifying to look at. I can't really see how that's the case. He's just a super jacked gnome with an epic beard. His mustache was so long, too, that he had to tuck it behind his ears. After he emerged from some powder that sparked on a fire, having come from a far land instantly, he bowed before his sister and her husband, his brother-in-law, and seemed to already know what to do. The city was full of eyes peering between cracks as Ahmed, Pari, and Shaibar walked by, because Shaibar was apparently so horrifying to look at. Once again, not remotely sure how this is the case. Being able to swing 500 pounds, and also having a mustache that tucks behind my ears are like two of my life goals right there. Anyway, they finally came to the Sultan's palace, who also could not bear to look at Shaibar. Ahmed bowed low and said he brought the Sultan a gift. The final gift 
Ahmed motioned for Shaibar to go up to the sultan, and Shaibar obeyed, with a sneer. Ahmed looked up for approval, but only saw his father looking down with hatred and disgust at his wife. Guards, the sultan cried out. Men marched from the surrounding rooms and pointed spears at the genie. Ahmed backed up to shield his wife. Ahmed, step away from that thing, the sultan said. Daddy's freeing you. Ahmed said, what? He didn't, he didn't want to be free. Well, he was free, he looked at his wife, right? Anyway, no, he loved her. The sultan said Ahmed only thought that he was in love. It was a trick, they did that. Look, the longer they talked, the more time it gave her. He looked to the guards. Do it now. They hesitated, but the prince. The sultan shook his head. If the prince was so far gone as to throw away his life for her, grant his request. They were all in danger right now. The men approached cautiously. Ahmed trembled. But Pari didn't move. She said she could save them. But it would be Ahmed's choice. Her, Pari, his wife, or the sultan his father. Ahmed hesitated only for a moment. Her. Pari exhaled, looked to Shaibar, and nodded. Shaibar, standing beside the throne, brought his 500-pound staff down on the sultan. After that choice, the rest of them were easy. Shaibar swung and took out most of the advisors and the guards backed up. The only one to survive among the advisors was the vizier, who saved himself by cowering. And he confirmed everything Ahmed feared. The sultan had sent a spy to the cave. He was afraid of Ahmed and Pari. All the requests were an attempt to weaken them and strengthen him for the inevitable war. Three more people were brought before the throne. The sorceress was dispatched quickly, with Shaibar telling her she no longer needed to feign injury the crown prince, Ali, and the princess, Nur-Nahar, for not playing a part in the plot against them, were permitted to live in fancy exile, ruling over a province far, far from the capital. Hussein, the oldest brother, was offered a spot in the court of his brother, but upon hearing what happened, he decided that he would be happier and probably live longer as a hermit in poverty in the woods than as a prince. Once Ahmed made the decision to choose his own life and parties over his father's, he was never the same. He never fully trusted anyone after that. Even Pari, who he had long suspected of engineering the situation to make him sultan and her sultaness. He never knew that after he died an elderly man, shut in, afraid of anyone coming for his power, even his own sons, Pari, hadn't aged a day, disappeared back to her own land, having only stayed in the world of the humans and as a saltness for him. A lot of the versions of the story cut it off at the first half, where the brothers cast aside their own ambitions to work together to heal the princess. I think the second part is necessary, though. The first is laudable. People in fairy tales often don't put aside their ambitions. 
The second part goes to show that even with the exemplary end of the first, you have to stay vigilant, stay talking. I tried to show how both sides, Pari and Ahmed on one and the Sultan on the other, could misinterpret what was happening and how they might not be pure villains. It was a tragedy, more than anything, that they couldn't find common ground and talk it out, but instead chose to try to outmaneuver the other, to everyone's detriment. If you'd like to support the show, there's still a membership thing on the site and on Apple Podcasts. For less than the price of a bicycle pizza cutter, a double pizza cutter in the shape of a bicycle, you can get extra episodes and ad-free versions of the show that, sadly, won't help you live your dreams of riding a bicycle across a pizza. You, you have very specific dreams. That's awesome. Check out mythpodcast.com membership to listen to the member episodes while eating your bicycle cut pizza. The creature this time is the Old Woman of the Mountains, from Wales, in Britain. Old Woman of the Mountains is an elderly woman, walking a mountain. She was one of the Gwathion, and thanks to everyone who responded on Instagram helping out with that one. Hopefully I got close. But anyway, that's a Welsh word, possibly meaning ghost, spirit, night wanderer up to no good, or outlaws of the wild. And yeah, the Old Woman of the Mountain is kind of all those things. Maybe. You see, if you find an elderly woman, maybe carrying an open pail of milk while you're lost in the forest, and then chase after her, it doesn't seem super surprising that she might run away. It's impressive that she can keep the pail of milk intact, and you might get supernatural vibes when you can't quite keep up with her, or maybe, you know, the woman who lives on the mountain gets more cardio than you. If everyone who could run faster and farther than me was a spirit, well... I would be living in a world of ghosts. One man, on Black Mountain in Breckenshire, chased after the old woman of the mountain and couldn't catch up to her, finding himself, at the end of it all, stuck in a swamp. She laughed at him because, of course she did, standing on the edge of the swamp. And so, because she was an obvious spirit and not an elderly woman with a sense of humor, he pulled a knife on her. Exorcism by knife is, apparently, a thing in Welsh folklore. I'm going to put a pretty big asterisk by that one because that's according to the American writer, Wirt Sykes, who died in 1883. According to him, pulling an iron knife on the old woman of the mountain is enough to get her to flee. That is also the case with most people. But yeah, an iron knife will keep them away. Cold iron is a traditional fairy vulnerability. One church had to keep knives out of the corner in which they kindled a fire for the old woman of the mountain to sit during stormy weather. Not really out of kindness, but out of fear of what they would do if they were offended. Now, I love Welsh folklore. It is some of my favorites, and far be it from me to question if this creature exists. I'll say, though, it does feel like there are just some women living out on the mountain, minding their own business, who don't want to have knives pulled on them. Just saying. That's it for this week. Myths and Legends is by Jason and Carissa Weiser. Our theme song is by Broke for Free, and the Creature of the Week music is by Steve Combs. There are links to even more of the music we used in the show notes. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next time. 